Production. Recorded live. Welcome to Evolution Revolution with Dulcinea. It is Thursday, January 15th, 2009. Happy New Year's. As this new year begins, we have the opportunity to renew our unique expression in the world by reevaluating our values and beliefs to ensure that they are a most accurate expression of who we truly are from the deep core of our inner being. When we change ourselves for the better, we change the world in that same positive direction. Evolution Revolution is focused on offering the listeners intuitive and balanced information that fosters transformation both personally and globally, ultimately raising the consciousness on planet Earth. I am a metaphysician, clairvoyant, and clairaudient intuitive, a writer, public speaker, PR and marketer, personal advisor to visionaries, leader, and spiritual teacher. Please explore more on my website at www.evolutionrevolutionradio.com. Thank you for joining the show this evening, wherever you may be listening. Tonight, I would like to take a moment to honor in fond memory the late Alan Arcieri, a dear friend, mentor, teacher, and spiritual medium who has made his transition to the higher spiritual dimensions. Alan was a compassionate, genuine, and balanced individual who shared his book, Earth School 101, with Evolution Revolution's audience in August of 2008. Alan was working on Earth School 202 at the time of his passing. You can explore more of Alan's teachings in the Evolution, excuse me, Revolution archives along with the link to his very resourceful website. I would like to wish Alicia, Alan's daughter, much compassion and support at this time and great success as she takes over Alan's practice and website. Thank you, Alan, as you watch down from the heavens above for your divine guidance and a most meaningful support on my journey personally and professionally with Evolution Revolution. Tonight on Evolution Revolution, I am honored to have an appearance from Bob Gevelline, who graduated from Harvard in 1956 with a BA in mathematics. In 1955, he saw the threat of nuclear annihilation as proof of total systems failure, so he turned his back on the culture and set out to design a new civilization. Through psychotherapy, withdrawal from the culture, and dream analysis, he succeeded. In 1967, he discovered how human nature itself can be changed to create a new civilization. In 1985, he self-published Re-Educating Myself, An Introduction to a New Civilization, describing his search and the results in great depth. Bob has worked as a computer programmer and the creator of software systems for approximately 20 years. After retiring from programming in 1999, he spent eight years writing his latest book, The Mental Environment, mostly about mind pollution, in a pristine country setting near Moose Mountain in a corner of Hanover, New Hampshire, although his chosen home is Provincetown, Massachusetts. Welcome, Bob. Hi. Well, it's a pleasure hi. to have you this evening. Okay. It's, it's, uh, thank you for having me. Wonderful. So how did your meaningful search for answers the last 50 years lead you to the creation of your latest book, The Mental Environment? Well, the first book uh, seemed was blocked uh, by the academics and the New Age people who kind of had the idea that they had totally superior answers. So I I just had to come back and, and do a little criticism, and, and I included religion in there. Uh, because I think people, uh, religious people, think they have all the answers too. So I'm, I'm. Uh, this book is not as positive as the first book, although it does bring in the positive ideas. But it's um, looking back and and uh, saying, okay, you people don't have all the answers, and that's what motivated it. And yeah. Very profound, very profound. You touch on many influences in society, and you go in great depth examining the lies of today, the current major belief systems and their inaccuracies, including the major contributors to what you coin mind pollution. So would you mind sharing with our audience 
the definition from your perspective of mind pollution and then possibly elaborate on what would be safe to call mind pollution? Well, mind pollution is simply <clears throat> inaccuracies in um, what we believe, inaccuracy, the, the mental environment being the total environment of uh, other people's thoughts that are impinging upon us. And in those thoughts, there are inaccuracies, whether deliberate lies or, or just people making mistakes. And um, I mean, uh, all these great writers who are sort of accepted, uh, Kant and Maslow and Marx and names Freud and Darwin and all these people, um, they're kind of accepted as gospel. And, okay, maybe they were wrong a little bit. And, and one of my, after going through psychotherapy and thinking Freud could do no wrong, I, I did my winter of dream analysis and saw that Freud had made a great many mistakes. Didn't mean that Freud was all wrong, just that he made a, a, lot, a lot of mistakes that were many of them improved on by Carl Jung. Uh, for example, Freud um, said that dreams were wish fulfillment. Well, Carl Jung said, no, dreams are simply the subconscious is uh, correcting or complementing the conscious attitude. And uh, that makes a lot more sense. It's that we have this greater mind, which is correcting us. Um, and... Uh, See, there was Freud, and then of course Darwin. I'm I'm arguing yes, his uh, he was actually pressured into publishing his theory of evolution. He hesitated for 20 years, and somebody else was going to publish the same paper. So Darwin kind of was forced into it, and the world took it over and said, "This is wonderful. This gives us a belief system where we don't have to believe in God or superior beings." And this is and the biologists and the scientists, uh, you know, have gone with this, and this has become sort of like their religion, uh, starting with evolution. Okay, everything evolved kind of by random mutation and so forth. And uh, so, uh, and uh, other idea, Marx, uh, well, Marx was, Marx came from a different point of view. I was uh, the son of a factory owner. I was actually... Um, uh, let's say mistreated by uh, by Marxists when I was two years old and and crippled psychologically for 30 years as a result of that. Uh, but I have no yes, of course I understand. I mean, uh, you know, my father uh, he he did not pay people a lot of money, although he loved everyone who worked for him and felt responsible. Although the public attitude, of course, was that being a factory owner. He was the same callous kind of a person that um, exploits human beings. So, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of lies in the culture that are implicit in our education. Um, Kant, the great philosopher. I mean, uh, I can't even understand the title of his book. It's a critique of pure reason, but he's talking about the uh, perception and. Um, so anyway, and 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 he does it in an authoritarian way that doesn't present any proof to you that you can understand. He just says this is so. So there, there's a lot in our culture um, that needs to be. I mean, after I turned my back on the culture, I didn't know anything about a lot of these things and um, figured out answers for myself. And and coming back and looking at it and. Uh, I think the the academic people. Uh, I would like I would like them to read my book. I would like them to read my book and and uh, evaluate it honestly and and say either yes this is something new or yes this has been said before and here is where it has been said before and that's where they don't uh, do that they. Uh, just say, oh yes, that's been said before, but they don't give me the chapter and verse. They don't give me the book title and the page and the exact quote. So um, anyway, I'm um, trying to. Uh, I'm just trying to communicate with the culture now. Now the hippies, uh, 
went ahead and, and took drugs and, and went way, 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 way up. Uh, the trouble with drugs is you have to come down. You stop taking drugs. And Baba Ram Das said, well, it would be fine if you could stay on drugs forever and you'd be up there forever. But you come down and then uh, it's too difficult to even try to explain the psychology of this, of having been up. You think you're superior, but you're really not up there anymore. And that's sort of what I'm trying to criticize in the whole, and the new age was descended, uh, evolved out of the uh, whole hippie uh, drug culture. And uh, some of those ideas that came from taking drugs, I'm saying, well, that's not totally accurate. Or I'm saying, hey, you know, you need to consider my approach too, which is psychotherapy. And um, and that was rejected in the 60s. They said, okay, psychiatrists are tools of the establishment, which is true if you're in an institution where the establishment is paying the psychiatrist, absolutely. But where I was paying the psychiatrist, no, he was working for me. And I explain in my book how I opposed, he was trying to... Uh, uh, be authoritarian, uh, uh, foist his authority on me as 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 part of the treatment to see how I take it, I'm sure, because when I uh, said, no, I don't want to be that, then he would back down, and I think he felt, although he didn't say that, but I think he felt, okay, we're making progress now. Bob is becoming independent of father authority and all that kind of thing. And, of course, the religion, oh, well, I didn't really want to have to uh, criticize religion. It's sacred to a lot of people, and there are people I love who are serious religious people. Um, but I said, well, I'm, you know, I have, to, I have to put religion in there. I mean, the religion is the greatest source, single source of mind pollution in the world. I mean, they take these little girls in white dresses and teach them things like evolution is the work of the devil when they're like too young to reason it out and read the scientific papers they're they're indoctrinated with this stuff and that goes on and and I criticize the christian I don't go to the muslims or the hindus or the buddhists or anyone uh, the christian is of course what I'm most familiar with in the united states and and uh so I leave it there, and I'm sure these some of these other religions uh, are just as bad. So, um, yeah, I'm saying, okay, you're brought up in a religion. You think you know the truth. Well, maybe you don't. And the chapter, the title of that chapter is Ultimate Truth First. Every religion, uh, at least, again, the Christian, claims to know the ultimate truth. We know the ultimate truth, and God is this, and God expects this of you, and this that's all there is. And, and uh, I'm saying, well, this philosophically, that's not a, a good logical way to go about it. I mean, we start as children, and we learn the most um, simplest truths, the truths that are closest to us, and we move out from there and expand our universe, and that's the way a person learns and and this is just fine you don't have to know the ultimate truth we don't have to know how many universes there are or whether or not it's finite you know and and these huge telescopes and, and going to the end of time and space um just learning the things closest to you so um i basically oppose the whole philosophy behind religion of believing that somebody some priest knows the ultimate truth or that the Pope is infallible and so forth. And I'm not, I don't, uh, by mentioning the Pope, I'm not trying to aim at any particular religion. I'm just saying, okay, here's this figure that's in, supposed to be infallible. And I'm sure there are uh, equivalent figures in, in other religions. So um, this is kind of what I mean. <coughs> Excuse me. I've talked for too long. Uh, Time for another question, I think.
Yeah, no, that's great. And what and what we're doing and what I what I experienced as I read the mental environment, Bob, was that you really do. I see that you were on a personal search for some understanding, which explains why you were able to delve into psychotherapy with drawing from the culture and then using dream analysis to really alter the programming that you became aware of, which you just mentioned was religious programming, academic programming, and what was coined the New Age movement in the 60s and 70s with the quote-unquote hippie exploration with drugs and and higher dimensions and, like you said, coming up. (laughs) So with all of that in place, how did you come to the awareness to really identify what was limiting you, and then how did how did you have the strength to maneuver around those obstacles and live your truth? See, that's a that's a big question. I I don't really uh, have the how did I have the strength? Um, I I was basically on a suicide mission. First of all. Um, uh, I decided I could either walk down the stairs or go to the, and go to the psychiatrist, or I could jump out of the window. And I did contemplate suicide, as I think a lot of thinking people do when they're uh, confronted with pain in life. Um, I had pain in life. I had psychological problems, which were caused partly by this Marxist. Uh, let's say invasion i i'm i can't pick the right words when i'm on the phone uh, when i'm writing a book i have a couple of years to get the right word <laughs> you're doing great <laughs> you know, I, probably uh, I, I maybe about a b plus when i'm on the phone it's how i grade myself you know i don't get it perfect but anyway um that's courage i was driven by psychological problems as as i explained um I when I first went to the psychiatrist I identified my real self as being the 4-year-old Bobby Gebeline. Hey, I'm 4 years old. This is the real self and this is where the real self stopped growing and of course that real self I was in New York City, I'm looking for a job, I'm trying to have relationships with adult women and well, yes, I I I look 24 and I'm a you know, six-foot male who's attractive physically, but deep inside there's still this four-year-old, and people talk about the inner child, child, (coughs) excuse me, and it's become sort of a cliche, but um, yes, I mean, I discovered this inner child, and and he really was there, and I had to bring him up, and and with the help of the psychiatrist, I brought him up to uh, I thought adult. The psychiatrist told me I was okay and I could stop the treatment. And I said, okay, I'm a grown man now. And then the dreams picked up. That was the interesting thing. I didn't start the dream analysis. I'd read uh, the fall of 1966. Uh, I read the basic writings of Carl Jung. And I said, well, okay, where did Jung find his archetypes? Well, he found them in dreams. Okay. I want to explore my dreams and look for archetypes. And that was my research project that, you know, in December of uh, 66 and and the winter in in province down here, it's basically a summer colony for people who aren't familiar with it. It's become a homosexual colony now. Um, But in those days, it was just a summer place and, and, uh, so in the winter, uh, that's one of the things I liked about it. I had time to think about things and, and do my philosophy and collect my unemployment insurance. So, okay, I was going to uh, study, explore my dreams to uh, look for archetypes, and bang, my dreams picked up, and they started right out where the psychiatrist had left off. And I'm 10 years old in the dream, and it's... There's a muddled part in there, but I got the picture that uh, the average person is also 10 years old psychologically. The average person has not reached puberty. And I said, aha, maybe this is why I have such difficulty with women. And uh, so uh, I 
was motivated to explore that. And I said, well, what if I reached the psychological age of puberty? Then would I have better luck with women? And the answer was yes. But first of all, there was a long winter where, uh, again, uh, I don't know, not so much courage. It was uh, it was fun. It was excitement. It was uh, some of the dreams were kind of scary. And I remember the one where I really did reach that age of puberty, where uh, the, uh, it was my the dream. It was my first day in the Coast Guard, and there were huge sharks out in the ocean, actually the ocean side, and. It was my job, and the man, woman, and child had been swept away somehow, and it was my job to rescue them out there with these huge sharks. And there was this tiny little dinghy. The two older men were holding this little dinghy for me to get into, and I could see that this dinghy was no match for a 14-foot shark, that the shark would just flip it over and eat me. But I hadn't earned the right to, to get into a bigger boat and I wasn't going to be the hero here and rescue these people. I was just going to go out and mark the spot. So, um, and and it was certain death. And, and I just met the beautiful young woman in the supermarket who I wanted to marry. And uh, so I was never going to do that. I was just going to go to my death. And I had to decide. And and when I stepped into the boat, I woke up with a jolt and, and uh Yes, I guess in the dream that took a little bit of courage, and then I realized, yes, this is the sign, the uh, of maturity, the willingness to sacrifice oneself or others, is the transition point that marks it. And yeah, that was a little scary, and and but after I did it, it was such a beautiful day, and I went out to the same spot on the ocean side, and it was. The sun was brighter, the water was bluer, everything was more beautiful than it had ever been, it seemed to me anyway. So um, anyway, I was uh, sort of uh, not so much the courage, but uh, just uh, driven, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so you really had some personal experiences with your own senses that really allowed you to expand your awareness and release the limiting beliefs that you had acquired through your early childhood and teenage years. Yes, yeah, the uh, or the attitudes or um Anyway, yes, I I did experience through through and the dream analysis of course now, um, Freud and Jung said they came from the unconscious, but I was at a dream conference in 1991, and I'm talking to a guy, and he's saying, well, you know, what about maybe that dreams come from the spiritual and their messages from God? And I said, well, you know, I don't know where they came from. They come from deep down something that I'm not conscious of. Yeah, of course they could come from God. I, I don't know, you know, and might be the unconscious and it might be something much bigger. And then he revealed to me that he was a priest. And I said, okay, well, <laughs> I mean, he wasn't in uniform. You know, he was just sitting there talking to me. But it's very interesting that, yes, dreams may be, messages from the higher spiritual beings which we receive when we were asleep to kind of guide us through our lives and i don't like that word guidance because if you read my book i also believe that there are evil spiritual entities there are the good and the evil and uh uh, Richard Kinninger has warned me that uh, warned i think in a publication that that uh uh, the dreams possibly could come from the evil forces, but uh, I think that the, actually the dream, and of course the physical scientists are saying, well, the dream analysis is sort of like reading tea leaves. Well, it isn't. It's somewhere in between here. You have to interpret the dream. It's not like a tea leaf. There are definite clues given to you. Um, so I don't think what I'm saying is I don't think the evil forces 
but get in there unless you you accept the dream at face value. You know, if you have to interpret the dream, then it goes through your conscious process, and you can also be aware that uh, evil forces may be coming in. I did have some dreams of like dead people coming into my dreams, which I immediately scary. I didn't uh-huh. like. It. So I think basically I think I'm one is protected. I'd say one. Now I'm going from the particular to the general. I think the first thing I had four years of psychotherapy with a good psychiatrist and I made progress. And therefore I learned there were certain disciplines you learn in that. And first thing is you learn to find the fault in yourself in every situation. Like your boss. I mean, I remember my I was constantly complaining. My boss is terrible. He's doing this and he's doing that. Well, yeah, okay, that's your boss's problem. But, you know, where's the fault in yourself here? And you're expecting the boss to be, of course, the uh, the parent figure, the perfect godlike parent figure who makes no mistakes. And, of course, you know, that's the fault. So, Anyway, to to interpret the dreams, I think I think it's some some positive uh, development in psychotherapy is necessary just to learn the disciplines and the kinds of things to watch out for. Um, you also had a personal near death experience while writing your first book. How did that influence your path and alter your perception of the senses and the heavenly realms? Well, yeah, okay. I don't pretend to know anything really about the heavenly realm, but this was and 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 I don't call it a near death. I'm, I'm not meaning to correct you. I'm just sure. I've thought about this for a long time, and a girlfriend of mine in 1976 first mentioned it to me. I had mentioned this to her, and she said, "Oh, yeah, people are reporting." This um, going into the presence of God or heaven on the operating table when they're supposedly about to die, and and uh, and I was, but the reason I I don't call it near death is because I wasn't near death. I was 35 years old and very very healthy, although I just gotten a notice that I was too old to serve in the army. I mean that was nice because the Vietnam War was going on, but. Other than that, I was very, very healthy and, uh, you know, playing softball and running around and I could still throw and run and all those things. Um, <clears throat> I, but in the in writing my, my, my first book, I, I, had, I started in uh, April of 69, Easter morning, significant date, let's Start. Let's get this material together and let's write this book. Well, after about a month, I had such an enormous amount of material. And there was also, it gets complicated. I was, I had already moved into my new civilization after the psychological maturity and, and all that. I could see that people were still doing the same things, being greedy and running after money and and uh, I mean, we're seeing the result of that right now, people being greedy for money. But that's the American system, and it works. Anyway, I was beyond the American system. And I'm thinking, well, there's really no place for me in this world. I don't see any place for me in this world. And I was afraid that I would will myself to die. And I said the little child's prayer every night. Um, now I lay me down to sleep, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, because I didn't know, you know, I might die. Anyway, this is that situation, and then there's the situation of <clears throat> being depressed, having this huge amount of material. And I think, I can't remember the t- exact timing, but about that time, I stopped drinking coffee. So I was physically sort of depressed, actually, for about six months after stopping the coffee. And uh, all that on top of each other. And uh, one day I just flopped down on the bed and I was exhausted, just flopped down and said, I'm exhausted. I don't care if I live or die. 
and instantly I went up, up, up through this like large tube. It was just big enough to hold me. I'm holding up my hands here, about two, three feet in diameter. Fast, fast, like the old department stores used to have these pneumatic tubes to send the money to the cashier and up in the office somewhere. Uh, it was like that. I was going through this tube at a huge rate of speed, up, 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 through my, up, up out of my basement apartment. And I arrived in the presence of the bright light, which I knew from reading Carl Jung, do not look directly at the light. So I had my forearm up, my right arm, shielding my eyes from the light. And off to my left, at the right hand of God, stood the figure of Christ. And he said, okay. He, he just said, go back to work. I can't say it with the same intonation. It was very simple. It wasn't menacing like boss boss ordering you to go back to work it was just get back to work and down I went again down 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 very fast and I'm slowing down and it's like I'm uh, on a train a sleeping car which I was as a child going slowing down as you're going into a city and I'm thinking and I thought I died and I was being reincarnated and, and uh I, I said, oh, I'm not going to give up smoking this time. But um, anyway, uh, I mean, I'm not going to start smoking this time. Excuse me. Um, anyway, I I was, you know, relieved to find myself in the same bed. I think it might have been several hours later because it was light when I laid down. It was dark when I woke up, um, although I just might have slept for a while. Anyway, uh, the effect that that experience had on me was, okay, somebody up there likes me, basically, and is encouraging me to get back to work and to do my work, which is, has been difficult for me, and this project was difficult from the beginning of setting out to design a new civilization. I mean, I didn't have any qualifications for this. Uh, I have a wonderful talent at math and computer programming, but I, you know, had no obvious talents for uh, this. And nobody at Harvard, when I started talking about it, they all gave me kind of blank stares. Nobody at Harvard knew anything, knew even what I was talking about. Um, so anyway, the the effect of my uh, whatever death experiences, I don't call it near death because, hey, this is a death experience. I, I'm physically, I was fine. I just went up there and, and in the presence of the light, and 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 came back down under good circumstances. Um, I've never been afraid to die. After that, I was afraid to die, afraid to die, afraid to die. I've never been afraid to die since then. And also, I feel that okay, um, I'm doing good work. I'm being encouraged to do my work. Um, whatever it means. Uh, so uh, it was a very positive experience for me. And how did that alter your perception of your senses, maybe from um, a scientific or a physical experience? Because it took you out of your mind into your intuition. Um, yeah, I don't know. You probably know more about this than I do because I haven't ventured into the spiritual. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but I, when I was at Harvard, um, first of all, I was a physical scientist. I majored in physics and then switched over to math because math was my best subject and I really wasn't interested in physics. Um, and I was bombarded uh not only in science, but in the, uh, this is something I talk about a lot in my book, the social group of academia. There's a social group of people who are professors, and, and uh, they um, believe certain things and, and, and sort of impose those beliefs. I, I don't want to get into that too much. Anyway, anyone at Harvard with serious religious beliefs was ridiculed unmercifully. Now, their argument is, okay, we've got to get shake them out of these 
rigid religious beliefs and get them to think, and that's that's the argument from academia. But really, that that goes on to the point where uh, what is I uh, see I can't sometimes I can't remember what I said in my own book. Yeah, ninety percent of the people believe in God and a higher being. Ninety percent of scientists do not believe in a God or higher being. Now there's some there's a social group, there's a social belief system, a group think that's working there that people get indoctrinated into that non you know, this totally physical uh uh belief system and, and, and this is one of the I think the most serious prejudice that I, I'm trying to blast through here. Um so let's see where I was. I, I was with academia. I just I, in my old age, I sometimes lose my train of thought. That's okay. No problem. Um, yeah. How did it change? Yeah. Your question. How did it change my? Uh, so anyway, I was sort of can't say I was indoctrinated. I I believed in God. First of all, I my first day of Sunday school actually I rejected the Christian Church because. I I felt um, from the age four I felt that I had always existed, and so when I was six and I went to Sunday school the first day, okay here's the place to ask the question and I raised my hand, and I asked the teacher where was I before? Well her answer you know, the typical you can imagine the typical <laughs> teacher trying to answer this question you know and see Anyway, I recognized that she really didn't know what she was talking about. So I went home and I asked the question to my grandmother, who was not your ordinary grandmother. I mean, my grandma, Gabeline, baked pies and cookies and all that stuff and was your ordinary grandmother. But my grandmother, Seaver, was a philosopher and an artist and actually had a law degree and uh all those things, and believed in, you know, had Easter, I've got two of her paintings here, sort of, and in them, they're sort of abstract and modern, but they're like, this is smiling Buddha there in each one. I mean, she was definitely... Very evolved. Uh, yeah, very evolved, and she was like, uh, you know, two generations back. Uh, ahead of her time. <laughs> ahead of her time, very much ahead of her time. Anyway, I came home, and I asked my grandmother, you know, well, uh, uh, yes, where was I before? And the Sunday school teacher didn't have the answer. Well, she said, now the Hindus believe. And she made it very clear to me at age six that this was a Hindu belief and that, that I was not supposed to spout it in a Christian society. But, of course, the Hindus believe in reincarnation. So, of course, makes a lot more sense. Explains, you know, the fact that I believe I was... Uh, always existed. I mean, I didn't know that I was anybody specific, just that I was more than four years old or six years old, that I'd been around for a lot longer than that. So um, anyway, the uh, I rejected, and, and then when I got, so anyway, when I got to college, I, I believed in God, and I believed in reincarnation, but I was confronted with this not not so much science, but groupthink of the academic world of uh, uh, sort of shouting me down. And the other thing, I I played football. Oh, my God. Intramural. <laughs> I wasn't even good enough to make the college team. It was intramural, but it was tackle football. I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed getting out and being able to smash guys and, you know, in a, in a controlled setting. Uh, and um, the professors were really, you know, whoa down on that. I mean, even though it brings in a lot of revenue for every college and university, this is this is a no-no. Anyway, the, uh, this is getting off the track, but just just to show that there are prejudices in academia, and uh, uh, one of and the serious one is is against the spiritual. And, and uh, the late, oh, marvelous William F. Buckley, God and Man at Yale. Uh, he was like five years ahead of me, but it was, and he was actually arguing for a traditional religion, and, and uh, uh, I'm arguing for something else here. Anyway, I took the scientific hypothesis, 
when I was at Harvard, okay, I will believe in God when I see God. Okay, and everyone was satisfied with that. Didn't say I don't believe. I didn't say I did believe. And and I didn't, you know, know whether I believed. Just I just said, okay, this is consistent with my scientific uh, education here, training, whatever. And so yes, the dreams I I dreamed of God as a light in my dreams before this, before this actual meeting. Uh, and so I, or or a, a force, the light in my dreams was love, and here was a light, the supreme light of the universe, with the, like the supreme power. It was many times brighter than the sun. It came at me first through a heavy fog bank. It was kind of like brilliantly illuminated, almost like a a blank movie screen. That's white white with the light behind it. Um, and the little gold cross in the fog, of course, symbolizing Christ and how we get rep represent uh, how we communicate with God through Christ. Um, and that was in my dream a long time before this experience. And, and uh, I mean, uh, it was 67, so yeah, it was two years ahead of the actual uh, death experience. So, yes, I had, the dreams had shown me, okay, that's good enough for me. And, of course, now in my book, I say, what, dreams is evidence, and, and I can hear the judge in a courtroom saying, inadmissible. You know, <laughs> I mean, dreams are evidence of anything? Well, you know, and, and I do argue, I mean, I took atomic physics in, in college. We never saw an atom. But through logical deductions and formulas and a lot of leaning heavily on E equals MC squared, yes, we, uh, you know, we proved there's an atom and the energy of the atom and all these kinds of things. Um, what I'm saying is that theoretical physicists um, it don't work with concrete things that you can see. They work with uh, theories and formulas and, and maybe principles that have been worked out. So... Similarly, I'm working with dream analysis and, and uh, principles that uh, one of them is a self-steering process, which I thought I had discovered. Actually, that's why I was at the dream conference in 1991. I was presenting my paper on the self-steering process, and I've since then discovered that Carl Jung actually, I mean, I'm sure somebody discovered it before, but I hadn't known about it. Uh, until like 2004 or something that Carl Jung uh, discovered it in, in, in 1931. But he was in the, in the mindset of a professional working with other people and saying, well, how can I use this as a professional working with other people? Oh, although he did, I think, mention that maybe people could use it to analyze their own dreams. I mean, uh, uh, maybe he didn't want to admit that we don't really need the professionals. Well, we do, again, as I said, to teach us some of the disciplines, but not to tell us what our dream means. Anyway, the self-steering process, for those of you out there who are not familiar, um, when I went into this dream winter, and it required a lot of interpretation of the dreams, what do these symbols mean, I asked myself, well, what if my interpretation is wrong? And I went half the winter with this interpretation, this idea in my head, anxiety. And, and uh, then uh, at one point I had a dream. It was a wonderful dream. I mean, I I was at a point when I where I was having these dreams I thought were homosexual dreams. And I said, well, maybe that's my problem with women. Maybe I'm really a homosexual. Well, I had this dream. And there was this beautiful woman, sort of like, Elizabeth Taylor in her prime. Uh, I'm of her generation. I mean, I was in love with her. Nashville Velvet, 1944. Anyway, um, she's totally naked on a bed. And I'm, you know, starting to go towards her. And suddenly I'm in this car full of boys. They're either homosexuals or they're teenagers. And they're riding around a town in this convertible. 
and having lots of having a wonderful time and all I want to do is get out of that car and back to that woman of course which is teaching me you know and and I, with the enormous effort I lunge and I get out of the car which of course wakes me up and and for a week afterwards I was trying to get back into that dream and to that woman <laughs> so immediately I'm corrected you know my interpretation of the the, the whole idea that I'm maybe a homosexual is you know I'm, I've been totally corrected by the dreams anyway and that's that's the self-steering process and that's how it works and the more off base you are the more powerful your dreams I was once uh, through one of my dream publications I think it was the dream network um, I ran an ad asking uh, other people who might have experienced the self-steering process and I got a response from a guy who was like, well, obviously very famous. I, I don't want to identify anybody in any way. I mean, sure. dangers of lawsuits and all that. But he was somebody very famous, and he was saying, "Pooh, pooh! I have dreams that I'm being dropped off a cliff every night, and I don't believe it. It's a lot of hooey. <laughs> and, of course, you know, I realized, oh, my God, yeah, he's, and and not being a therapist, that's one thing. I I really couldn't give him any advice. I mean, this was, but he's his, you know, whole attitude is being corrected. He's not really as high and mighty as he thinks he is. And the dreams are every night after night are trying to correct him. Um, so anyway, that's I and mean, that's sort of really not a good example because the self-steering process. The question I asked was. What happens if my interpretation of a dream is wrong? Yes, the dreams will correct you if your whole attitude about life is is wrong. And similarly, if you're, of course, your conscious attitude, is, as Jung said, it all fits into his definition. Your conscious attitude, when you interpret a dream, that becomes part of your conscious attitude. Uh, if you interpret it not like the academics, well, it might be this and it might be that. No, you've got to take a stand. It means this, like I must be a homosexual. I, you know, there's no problem. I'm living in Provincetown. There's no, you know, I won't have any social problems here adjusting. Uh, you take a stand on your interpretation and then they have something to correct. So uh, I guess uh, that's... I, Lots sure, and, and to, cl to clarify how this relates to the mental environment, mostly about mind pollution, is really just to link the tools that you found through your journey to help you overcome the limiting belief systems in religion, academia, and what you coined the New Age movement to help you come into your authentic self, your higher self, your true self versus the societal self or the false self. And those are those blocks are what you go through in the mental environment. You really look at the what you coin the mind pollution or the lies that each of these belief systems offer to help others increase their own awareness and help them to find their authentic self as you have through the theories and through the scientific rules and just through these three major belief systems. And so I just want to let people know that's what they're going to find in the mental environment, mostly about mind pollution, a very valuable tool, an enlightening perspective, and highly integrative with personal experience and a strong uh, academic cognitive edge, so it's a very balanced approach, and it includes a lot of the personal experience from your life, Bob, which allows the reader to really relate to what you're going through because, of course, we're all human on this journey learning through imperfection and trials and tribulations. Well, yes, I, I'm, I think of myself as an explorer. I've been through this mental territory and uh, not so much the spiritual, I don't know very much about that, but certainly the mental territory I've been through, and and, uh, and then I'm looking back on, on the culture and saying, okay, from this perspective, from this mountaintop, I, I don't want to call myself the top of the mountain, but I have a little perspective to look back on the culture that I came from, which, of course, 
other people are already in and say, okay, these are some of the biases or uh, errors, uh, uh, inaccuracies is the word I use, which is a word that, uh, as I explained, hasn't been uh, corrupted like words truth and error. Error is Mary Baker Eddy in Christian Science. Error. It's like a judgmental thing that I grew up with. Um, I grew up with Christian Science. Uh, the the uh, yeah inaccuracies. So I politely say inaccuracies and and just getting people to other people to question kind of what they've been taught to believe. Also, I'd like to let people know that the Mental Environment Mostly About Mind Pollution was named a finalist in the 2008 Indie Book Awards in two categories, Social Change and the Nature Environment category, which leads me to our final question. How does our internal mental environment affect the external physical environment? Internal mental environment. Well, the I'm thinking of the mental environment as something external. Uh, I'd say other people's thoughts. Of course, it does include your own thoughts, which is, um, I mean, your own personal psychology, which puts a spin on what you see. Um, the the uh, it's the the mental environment is something. It's not one's own internal thing. It's something that exists in the world and and uh, there are belief systems and they're all part of the mental environment they're all trying to sell you their belief uh, and and they of course all affect i mean the pollution in the physical environment is a direct result of pollution in the mental environment which tells people you have to make a profit regardless of any other values um, our, you know, countries like Japan, which I understand, you know, they don't have enough food. They have to go out and fish the waters of the world clean to feed their people. But hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. So, so the mental environment is in is is, is something. It's not just internal. I, I'm thinking it's it's something which is impinging upon all of this. I see 1052. Uh, <laughs> It's time. Sure, sure. So I think the point that I was making is that if we change our attitude and our internal experience, we have the ability to change the larger global problems that we're experiencing because, after all, we are all interconnected through an unseen universe. Okay, you believe that. I haven't seen the evidence of that, but um, other people have told me that, yeah, that even my thoughts – even though not many people have bought my book, that that it helps the world that I've thought through all of this. Very much so, and I have to really agree with you. Coming from a very strong scientific background in molecular cellular biology, really in that physical science, leading into the uh, I did applied research in social psychology, where we went out and worked with real people, and then I that led me to my own inner journey of you know, clairvoyant school and intuitive exploration. Of course, while I was working grounded at Stanford, <laughs> so I was, had my hands dabbled in both worlds, and it really allowed me to explore. And so I just want you to know that you, I feel you're a very evolved soul with ideas that are also ahead of your time, much like your grandmother. And your book will resonate with, resonates very highly with myself, and I believe many people in my generation, because we're coming from a very integrative open perspective, and labels are much less meaningful to the, my generation and myself than has been so in the past because we're seeing that the labels have failed. So Bob, I really commend you for creating a, a fantastic read, The Mental Environment, mostly about mind pollution. And um, again, congratulations on being a finalist in the 2008 Indie Book Awards in two categories, Social Change and Nature Environment. Well, you can... <coughs> Excuse me, thank you. I'd, I'd really love to have a conversation. I'd really like to ask you about your experience sometime. But. Sure, sure. I'd, lo I'd love to talk. You can find Bob on the web at www.omdega.com. That's O-M-D-E-G-A.com. Can I just uh, say something? Uh, 
Sure. Amazon.com is much more trusted, and you can actually get new used copies for a huge discount there. Great. So if anybody looking to actually purchase the book, we'll, we'll direct you to Amazon.com. But if you'd like to know more about Bob, check out his books, music, blog. Go to www.omdega.com. Each human being is subjected to a set of societal structure that includes religious, academic, cultural and familial, societal and political influences that can hinder our clarity about the truth of who we are. These systems are set to assist our understanding of the world, but there comes a time when these beliefs and influences limit our unique perceptions and understanding of the larger world. At this moment, the opportunity to awaken one's inner being through multifaceted exploration in a way that expands and allows for a greater understanding and acceptance of the possibilities that lie within. Begin your search today deep within for the answers that you have been seeking for a lifetime that hold the key to the truth and higher essence of who you are and why you are on earth. Next week on January 22nd, Ariel Ford will introduce her latest book, The Soulmate Secret, that will show how true love is possible for anyone at any age and just in time for Valentine's Day. Please explore Ariel on the web at www.soulmatesecret.com. During the second half hour next week, we will explore a great conversation with Peggy McCall about her recent book release, Be a Dog with a Bone, which offers the dogma for success. It's time to dig up your dreams, lap up your success, and roll in the bliss. On January 29th, Egan Sanders will appear with his fascinating new book release, The Magic Box, which is an inspiring story about the mysterious process of how our deepest desires come into being via the law of attraction and includes a how-to guide to manifesting your heart's desires. On February 5th, Dr. Daniel Condren will remind us of the wise formula for inner success and divine balance in his latest book release, The Still Mind, Present Moment, and Open Heart. On February 12th, Dr. Stephen Farmer, author, shamanistic practitioner, retired spiritual psychotherapist, ordained minister, and former college professor, will unveil his integrative expertise in his latest book release, Earth Magic. Stephen is also the author of Power Animals, How to Connect with Your Spirit Guide, Power Animal Oracle Cards, Sacred Ceremony, and Adult Children of Abusive Parents. On February 19th, Karen Anderson, expert animal communicator, will offer a compassionate insight based upon her unique and talented ability to communicate with animals and their souls. In her latest book release, Hear All Creatures, The Journey of an Animal Communicator. On February 26th, Dr. Eric Pearl, internationally recognized healer, teacher, and author, will offer his revolutionary healing method, invaluable personal experience, and chiropractic professional expertise in his latest book release, The Reconnection, Heal Others, Heal Yourself. Also include, um, to include coming up for 2009, Stephen Lewis on March 5th, on March 12th, Barbara Marks Hubbard, on March 19th, Neil Donald Walsh, March 26th, Carol Obley. On April 9th, we can find Dr. Amit Goswami. April 23rd, Dr. Teresa Martin and Dr. Christine Madar from the School of Metaphysics. On May 14th, Ruth Probst. On June 4th, Barbara Han Clow. And coming up on June 25th, Matt Zoe, along with many others. You can also find all of their web links on the home page under the upcoming shows at www.evolutionrevolutionradio.com. You can also purchase all of the author's books featured on Evolution Revolution at www.amazon.com or link up to their individual websites through the Evolution Revolution homepage at www.evolutionrevolutionradio.com. Please join me in the upcoming weeks on the revolutionary independent production of Evolution Revolution for some exciting guests. And also explore the Evolution Revolution archive shows with inspirational authors that can be found on the Evolution Revolution homepage and the Radio Archives 2007-2008 tab within the website. And of course, all episodes are available for free in the iTunes store by searching Evolution Revolution Podcast. 
The archive shows are available 24 hours a day to listen to for downloading and include amazing talent such as Eliza Matadalion, Richard Lawrence, Robert Friedman, Chrissy Blaze, Barbara Marks Hubbard, Barbara Han Clow, Robert Schwartz, Jocelyn Chaplin, Alan Arcieri, Karen Sawyer, Gary Zukoff, Neil Donna Walsh, Jeff Brown, and more. Please share Evolution Revolution with others who may desire to join us in the future for an enlightening experience. I'm a metaphysical teacher, healer, and spiritual counselor who offers clairvoyant readings and teleclasses via phone, allowing me to connect with people anywhere. Please visit my website under the Services and Events page, which includes client testimonials and a wealth of information, a divine and spiritually enlightening experience awaits you. Also, please explore my blog at www.evolutionrevolutionradio.blogspot.com for weekly postings, guest announcements, and exciting updates and news for Evolution Revolution. Co-create with Evolution Revolution. We are seeking partners to help Evolution Revolution evolve and expand to even more people across the globe. If you are interested in partnering and supporting the rapid development of Evolution Revolution, please explore the Evolution Revolution tab at www.evolutionrevolutionradio.com. It's also under the Archives tab. I look forward to hearing from you about the infinite possibilities to co-create in the highest light and with the grandest intentions. Thank you for joining Evolution Revolution this evening with my honored guest, Bob Gebeline. Thank you so kindly, Bob, for your time, your expertise. We thank you so much for creating a fast, fascinating book, The Mental Environment. Thank you. Thank you again for having me on your show. Wonderful. Thanks, Bob. Much gratitude to you for listening and supporting the revolutionary independent production of Evolution Revolution Radio. I wish you all abundant peace, joy, miracles, and love today and always. Happy New Year's 2009. Create a most miraculous life this year. Abundant angel blessings. Good night. Good night. <laughs>